And I know Jaron said welcome, but welcome again. I know some of you, this is maybe your first time being in this new building, which we've only really been in about a month as far as worshiping here, and it still feels really good to have our own space. So praise God for that. Um, um, so I'm going to talk about Esther. You can see it right there on the screen. We're having a mini-series basically before we go into Advent season. And we're talking about faith of our forerunners. And it wasn't really in the uh, series, but Adam talked about Nehemiah a few weeks ago. And then last week, we were honored to have Bob Hyatt, Dr. Bob Hyatt, um, uh, talk to us about Abraham. And then I get to talk about Esther, which I love the book of Esther. Um, We did a Bible study over the book of Esther um, several years ago, like long before the pandemic, if there was such a thing. It was that long ago. And so I'm going to share with you some things, but, you know, I was kind of thinking, like, Adam's out, I'm in, it's almost kind of like I'm the substitute teacher, and so I should show a movie, right? But, <laughs> but I'm not going to show a movie. However, if you can just imagine the Netflix, you know, the Netflix noise, like, imagine that, because the book of Esther really wraps up a lot of drama, there's murder. There's some really good twists. There's some reversals of fortune. There is some stuff that might be R-rated, and I will not speak in detail about any of those things, but it'll be in the story in the background. There's lots of action. There's lots of really interesting characters, and really, the book of Esther is really written in a very hyperbolic way, very exaggerated. Uh, Probably a lot of the details were just lavishly thrown into the story. Maybe not exactly as it happened because it's almost so ridiculous, some of the things that happen um, and the way they're described. It is a narrative story, meaning that it was told as a story with the Israelites, with the Jewish people. And then it was written down. And then it was told again and again. And here I am telling it to you today. So I'm certainly not going to give you all the details that I did in my four-week, I think it was four-week Bible study, um, but we're going to hit the highlights. It's almost like if it was season two and we go last season on Esther, I'm going to hit all those highlights, and we'll kind of focus in on chapter four at some point. Um, But I wonder, and maybe if you were in my Bible study, maybe you know this, or maybe you just know interesting Bible trivia, does anybody know how the book of Esther is completely unique amongst the other books of the Bible? Yeah, you could say it. Amy knows this because she helped me with that Bible study. God is not mentioned um, anywhere in the book of Esther. Um, And so we're going to look at this theme of where is God? God wasn't mentioned, not by name, and not really even like other words we may use for God, like miracles or anything like that. Those specific words are not in this book. So we're going to have to look for God in the story, although I think it will become obvious once we really look. Um, This story, like Nehemiah, takes place, you know, four or five hundred years BC, and it's in that time after the Jewish people were exiled from Jerusalem, and they're out of their homeland, and this has been happening for a long time. What's interesting is that this time, they were able to come back to their homeland, so it's kind of called post-exile. However, a lot of people didn't go back for a lot of reasons. 
it was kind of hard to just pack up and make a whole new life in another place, especially if your parents and your grandparents had just been where you are. And so Esther and the other Jewish characters in the story were not in their homeland. They were in the city specifically is called Susa. And um, it talks about 127 provinces all the way from India to Kush, which is about like Ethiopia. It's a Persian empire. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of things in this story. I want, I'm going to go ahead and kind of tell you what we're looking for in this story. There's going to be a lot of reversal of fortune, like I already told you. This person has everything, and then they have nothing. This person has nothing, and then they, they get something really good. Um, there's certainly some things where a character doesn't set out to punish one person, but they're going to just punish a whole group of people. Um, because that's what people in power tend to do. They want to keep their power. They're going to squash people that threaten that power. There's also a theme of feasting. There are a lot of parties in Esther. A lot of, sometimes they'll be called banquets. Sometimes they'll be called festivals and um, or festivities, dinners, great dinners. And, um, and that happens quite a bit. And it's going to end with the biggest banquet of all. All right, so... If we think of this almost like a Netflix show, I thought about this a lot, you guys, because I knew we were going to do this series, and I'm like, I want to do Esther, because it's just been on my mind ever since that Bible study, and even when I was a little kid, I loved this story, okay? So I think episode one would look something like this. Here's a story about something that happened, and it was a long time ago, and let me tell you about it. And so we have these people. We have a king. He's referred to as King Xerxes. Um, and King Ahasura, which is like his Hebrew name. So depending upon your version of your Bible, you may see either king name. just has to do with different languages. And there's even Greek names sometimes thrown in there. And they have this extravagant feast. The king is throwing a very extravagant feast. It talks, it, I can't remember exactly what it says. It's going on a very long time. And at these feasts, there was lots of wine. And the king goes, I'm going to bring out my wife. The queen, who is very attractive and beautiful, and I'm going to show her off in front of everybody. And he calls for her, Queen Vashti. And so he calls her. She's having her own banquet with the women. You know, it's not like Disney princesses. The queens and other, you know, ladies of the court were really just there for to be called on whenever the king wanted them. And so she just goes, no. There's a lot of reasons why this might happen. It could be that she just was fed up. It could be that she herself had a lot of wine and was feeling very brave, and she didn't go. Now, this is only important because it sets the stage for the rest of the book. The king is obviously very embarrassed. His power is threatened, and all of his friends go, mm, you cannot let your woman talk to you like that. All of our women are going to do the same thing. The quote, it's somewhere in chapter 1. I don't know the exact verse. Um, it says, is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? I don't know about you, but I, I kind of want to watch that. That seems like that would be pretty funny to me. But um, certainly this was very heavy pa patriarchy. And they didn't want, women had no power. Women had no power. They were their fathers, and then they were their husbands or whoever owned them if they were in slavery. They had no power. Even the queen had no power. And so they're like, you got to do something. 
So off they go, and episode one ends, you know, how a really good series where it has to end on something where you go, I'm now hooked. I have to keep watching this. I'm going to binge all night. So it ends with all these bulletins being sent out throughout the land saying, we're looking for the most beautiful women in the world. It's like America's Next Top Model. We're going to find these women. We're going to bring them to the king and see who he likes. All right? So you can imagine the women of that time, whether they liked it or not, they might have been summoned to be one of these. Um, to come to the king's palace, okay? And it might have been a much better situation than they were in currently. Um, but again, women didn't really have a choice, even Esther. So the, the last scene, the last two seconds, you see a beautiful woman, Jewish woman, turn around, and she's now being called by her cousin Mordecai. So uh, episode two, any 80s music, movies fans in here? What does every 80s movie have? It's like you read my, I, I swear, I promise y'all, I did not feed her any of this. We really haven't talked about the details of this, but yes, 80s movies have montage. All these women that have now been summoned, including Esther, because her cousin Mordecai, who is like her charge because her parents had died, said, we got to get you into the palace, and then off they go with a year's worth of beauty treatment. So you can imagine all these women. I imagine them getting like their eyebrows waxed and... Um, their hair condition, maybe they took a bath for the first time ever. It could have been uh, like a true bath, you know, with hot water or something. And so um, here we have Esther. Now, it says she's very beautiful. And, and so in the language that's used is not just she's, you know, you're beautiful, everybody's beautiful. No, she was very good looking to lots of people. She was also attractive in the sense that she had a great personality. People really liked Esther. She just had that way about her. Any of you know anybody like that? We all probably know someone who just is generally attractive, and it could be the way they look. It could also just be they have a magnetic personality. And um, she goes to the palace. Now, one thing that you have to know is that Mordecai said, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. And, um, and she, they didn't even know she was really related to Mordecai at this point. There's no indication that that's happening. Um, and so here she is, just one of the ladies in the court. Many were there. And the king liked her. He took a liking to her, both in her looks and her personality. Um, and so they have a big party. Again, a huge party. The king has found his new queen. It's going to be Esther. Um, and so during this party, like what happens in a party, especially if it's a party in the Persian Empire, a couple of people decide, we're going to kill the king. We're going to take over. Because that was just the world that they lived in. And Mordecai knew of this. He witnessed this. And he tells on them. And he doesn't really get rewarded, but he saves the king's life. It is recorded in a logbook. So again, I kind of imagine like those last few seconds of an episode where you're like, I'm not hooked. I'm done. I'm going to go to bed. And then they're like writing down what Mordecai did in that logbook. And you're like, now I've got to keep watching. And so, you know, when one person goes down in power, they're out. Somebody comes in their place. And what usually happens in a superpower. The people that goes out, person that comes back in, are they better? 
Are they kinder? Are they more giving? No, they're generally much more ruthless and more awful because that's what they needed to do to get where they wanted to be. And that's who Haman was. He comes in and this, I call episode three, the rise of Haman. I feel like I need to contact Netflix. If, some, if I see this show in a year or two, I'm going to be like, I want my royalties. This would make such a good show. So, and we're getting to the point where we're going to start seeing, and maybe you have already seen God's handiwork in this. Um, but we're getting to the point where there's going to be a big conflict. Haman comes in, and he's pretty awful, all right? And he sees Mordecai, okay? And he might have known who Mordecai was. He probably did because Mordecai worked at the palace. And Haman goes, I'm second to the king. You got to bow down and worship me just like how you do the king. And Mordecai said, I'm not doing that. He doesn't really explain, but we know that there's lots of stories of the Israelites not willing to worship a person, okay, because they worshiped one God. Whereas most of the other religions at that time were monotheistic. They were willing to worship people because they worshiped lots of things, and they did what they needed to survive, all right? But the Jewish people typically, even in exile, really held firm to some of these beliefs, like our God is the only God. So Mordecai's not going to worship Haman, and Haman basically says, I hate you. And I don't just hate you. I hate all Jewish people, all the Jewish people that live in the palace, in the city, and in all of the 127 provinces. I want you all dead. That's a man who has so much power. He is the second below the king. He basically has the power of the king because the king is mostly staying put. Haman's out doing a lot of work. He has all this power, but he can't stand the little bit of power he doesn't have, okay? Have we seen this in our world, even lately? Yes. This is a reality then. It's a reality now. This is how people in power get corrupted, and they can't stand to not have all the power. Now, Haman does go a little, a lot overboard, and he wants all the Jewish people killed, not just in theory. He's like, I want them all killed on a certain day. We're going to kill every Jewish person on one single day. And the day will be determined by casting lots. There's not a lot of detail in the Bible about how they did this, but generally casting lots had something to do with like maybe dice or pulling sticks or something to that effect. It's not that key to the story. But he did cast lots, which they also called the pur, the pure, okay, Later on, I'm going to talk about a holiday called Purim. This is where that uh, name comes from. And he, the king went ahead and signed it with the ring because he's like, yeah, I promoted you, Haman. Cool. Do whatever. What do I care? I got a whole lot of people. What do I care if there's a few of them gone? Again, that's how people in power think. They're not concerned with the everyday people. All right. They're concerned with preserving their power. Um, Haman even said, if there's any trouble with this, I'll pay for it myself. I'm sure Haman's pockets were padded quite a bit, being second to the king. I'm sure he had a lot of money at his disposal. So again, end scene of this episode. 
the Jewish people are getting word. There's bulletins being sent out to all these 127 provinces saying, we're going to kill every single Jewish person on this day. And it was quite a bit away, like several months. It's not the, our exact months, but it was several months away. All right. And that had been decided by casting lots. And so then you think Esther. No one knows she's a Jew except for Mordecai and possibly other people in the village, but certainly not the king, not Haman either. I'm sure he would have probably said something. And like I was saying before, this is not a Disney princess situation. She would have been locked up in the palace. She would have had attendants helping her, continuing her beauty treatments. I'm sure she got her eyebrows waxed and makeup and whatever they did. I don't even know. I don't, I'm not the expert on that, but I'm sure she was getting her beauty treatments all the time because at any moment, the king could have called for her, right? And she wasn't going to say no because look what happened to the queen the last time um, the queen said no. All right, so this brings us to, to episode four, chapter four, if you will. And we're thinking, what will Esther do? How will Esther uh, deal with this situation? She's someone who had nothing. Now she has a little bit of power, a lot for a woman, but still just very little power. Really, her only power is because the king likes her a lot, all right? But it's not like she just has the run of the place. We've already seen what happens to a queen that thinks that they can tell the king what she's going to do and what she's not going to do. Okay, um, so uh, we're going to kind of look into Esther 4. If you would like to open up your Bibles, you can. We're going to read from um, chapter 4, verses 7 to 17, and you'll see it up here on the screen as well. Um, and so I'm going to read, this is from the New Living Translation, so you might notice yours may use slightly different words, but it's about the same. All right, so she sends an attendant out because she notices Mordecai is weeping and wailing and very distraught. And so Mordecai tells the attendant the whole story including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hatak, which was the attendant or the eunuch, a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Hatak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her, and he also asked Hatak to direct her to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hatak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hatak, because they're just writing notes back and forth, Mordecai, her own cousin, can't just go see her. I mean, she belongs to the king now. So they're having to pass all these messages back and forth. So then Esther told Hatak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces Know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. So this would be, you know, like a big gold thing, probably some jewels on it. And that's what he would have on his throne, with him on his throne. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So it's not like she's being entertained all the time. She hasn't even seen the king for 30 days. And just to go up to him, she knows what the rule is. 
if you think you're so important that you get to decide when you go see the king, you're going to die. So again, she has some decisions to make. Does she risk it? Does she not? It's easy to look at the story now and say, well, of course she should risk it. Those are her people. She's one person. Of course you should risk your life to save the lives of other people. But I want you to really think about if this was you, in your whole life you had nothing, and then you were given a little something. She did live in somewhat luxury. Um, she didn't have a lot of choice in her life, but she was safe. She was eating food. Um, she didn't have to worry about the future as long as she stayed in line. And this was really going to risk that. All right, so Hatak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. And Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. It's pretty stern. It's like a, think of this almost like in a dad voice. He wasn't her dad, but he, he was in charge of her after her parents died. Don't think for a moment that just because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. He had faith. He was distraught, but he had faith. We can see it from that part. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Now, we have to keep in mind that this isn't God talking really here. This is Mordecai talking, and he's kind of, he's probably angry. If you were Mordecai, you'd be like, well, you're the only one that can help us, or you are the person in the best position. And so we don't have to wait much longer to see what she did. And if you've ever heard the story, you kind of know, you remember a little bit of how this turns out. Esther sent this reply back to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. That's a pretty long time to not eat or drink. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in and see my king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. All right, so we see Esther made her choice in seeing everyone's fasting. And they're probably hopeful because they have heard of stories. These people would have heard about the God parting the Red Sea. They would have heard stories about God delivering people. Even the exile was not, it wasn't a full exile anymore. They were allowed to leave at this point, all right? Um, so they probably had faith. They probably had hope. But realistically, they were probably very scared. They didn't know what was going to happen. They're probably thinking, this is a good time for God to show up and do one of those parting the Red Sea things. Um, what is he going to do? Is he here anymore? Maybe a long time ago, God did these big things. But today, I don't know if God does this anymore. Maybe because we didn't go back to Jerusalem and do exactly what we were supposed to do. Maybe God's mad at us now. And because he feels like we abandoned him, maybe he's going to abandon us. Maybe they just thought, we're doomed. God's not big enough to handle this situation. Or if I was Esther, I know I wouldn't risk my life. 
there's no telling really what people were thinking, but people are people, you know. The types of emotions we have now, they had then. And so Esther does take a risk. I'm going to wrap up the rest of the chapter now, and then we'll have a few questions to ponder. So Esther dresses her best. Now, you got to know that Esther's best is better than probably any of us have, okay? Like, it's nice. (laughs) Um, And it probably took somebody like a year to make whatever she's calling her best, okay? Um, And she goes outside the throne room. Now, she doesn't barge up to the guy, to the king, (laughs) I shouldn't say the guy, to king and say, hey, you know, let my people go, like she might have remembered Moses saying. She kind of uses what she's got, what she's got is beauty, attractiveness. So she kind of gets in front of the king, catches his eye, and he does see her. And he's thinking, oh, yeah, I really like you. Um, and so he extends his gold scepter, and he even asks her, hey, I He didn't say, I love you. You know, they didn't speak like that. But I will give you anything you want. Now, he had all this power. He was willing to give some of it up for her. Now, part of it was for him because to keep her happy kept him happy. Let's be real. But she was in a position to help her people, and she had to play this pretty cool. Now, it certainly was something where she could have just then said, hey, by the way, I'm Jewish. Remember how Haman's going to kill all the Jewish people? Could we, like, not do that? She could have said that. She doesn't. She does something else. It's a lot more interesting. It makes for a much better Netflix show, what happens next. She invites King and Haman to a dinner, another party. Don't think of this as just a dinner. This would have been a very nice dinner, okay? And at the dinner, the king says again, half my kingdom, anything you want. And half his kingdom is like, we can't even imagine what half his kingdom would be. He's basically saying, I'll give you anything as long as it doesn't, like, completely ruin me. And she said, again, for reasons unknown to the reader, "Um, let's have dinner again tomorrow night, the three of us, again. Okay, so this sets the stage for Haman to go home. And you got to think if you're Haman, you're being invited to dinner with just the king and queen. He is feeling so good about himself, as if he couldn't feel any better about himself. He is now at the top, and he is walking tall. He's walking proud. He's bragging to his inner circle. Guess what? The queen, the king said, whatever you want. And the queen said, I want to have dinner with the king and Haman. He's thinking, this is pretty awesome. And it's only funny because he's so kind of evil that we know something bad's going to happen to him. But again, when you're watching a show, sometimes people call it like TV morals. You just know something's bad going to happen to him. And you're kind of, it's kind of almost funny because it's a completely reversal, complete reversal of power. So Haman's walking home. He's bragging to his inner circle and he sees Mordecai. Now, remember, Mordecai's just one guy who just didn't bow to him. That's all we know. Now, there could have been something else, but that's pretty much what we know. And that led to this whole, I'm going to exterminate all the Jews. And he sees Mordecai that night. And he burns with anger. 
He is on the top of the world. He has so much power. He has everything. But the one thing, the one, like, small fly in his soup, so to speak, is going to completely ruin his day. All right? And so his wife and his friends are like, you got to do something about this. Go ahead and start building a gallows, which is where you hang someone to kill them. All right? Um, so he's just not content. But he's thinking, this will satisfy me for a little while until we get to that prescribed date when my plan is going to be moved into action. All right, so also what happens that night is the king is sleepless. For whatever reason, you can read into that. He reads the logbook. Now, remember the ending of episode one? We, you know, I haven't been talking that long. Hopefully you do. What was in the logbook? <laughs> Mordecai saves his life, and the king reads that. That night, who would have thought? It's, it's such a good story. And he goes, hey, what did we do to reward Mordecai? And everyone's like, mm, we didn't do anything. Something came up after that. So then the king says, Haman, I'm glad you all are laughing because I find this story pretty hilarious. Um, it has everything. Um, the king asked Haman the next day, what would you do to honor a truly great man? What would you do, Haman? Haman, please tell me, how should I honor the greatest man, someone I really want to honor? Haman, of course, thinks what? It's me. So, hey, give him a crown. Give him royal robes. Give him a horse. Give him stuff that you own, that only the king has worn. And let's have a whole parade while we're at it. And <laughs> I love it because the king says, yes, let's do that for Mordecai. And it's just perfect. It is the perfect reversal. And now Haman's thinking, ooh, what did I get myself into? Because this is not good. So the last kind of main part of this story is that we get to the second dinner. Haman is now scared because his arch enemy, who is a Jewish person, who he's trying to kill, and all the Jewish people, is now the king's number one guy. He's like, I'm going to honor Mordecai. And also the queen is in good graces. Now, probably Haman doesn't know the relationship between Esther and Mordecai. He, he most certainly probably doesn't know that um, Esther is Jewish. He wouldn't know that because no one knew it. And But at this dinner, the king again says, ask anything. And she says, I would love for my life and the lives of my people to be spared. And she said, and he's like, who's doing this? And she says, Haman, Haman's going to kill me and all my people. And the king is going, that's not going to happen. And so Haman all of a sudden puts two and two together. He might be evil, but he's not dumb. And he starts to beg Esther. And the king's, and he's begging her. I'm sure he's groveling at her feet. And the king says, no, you don't treat my queen like that. You're going to die. Because, again, king has all the power. He's not letting anybody get into his power. 
And Haman was hanged on his own gallows that he built because he could not wait to kill Mordecai and all the Jewish people. The great reversal. Not only that, but the king gave Haman, uh, sorry, he took all of Haman's estate and gave it to Mordecai and Esther. And Esther, the king extended the gold scepter again, and Esther says, please cancel this bulletin. Let's put an end to all of Haman's plans. And of course, that's what happens. The Jewish people celebrated with feasts. Now, this went really far, so they had to send horses really fast because we were approaching that date. Let's save the Jewish people. Of course, everyone was celebrating. Certain translations say, well, now, like the message translation says, now everybody wants to be Jewish. It was dangerous to not be Jewish. That was kind of the mood at this point. All right? And um, all those people that were weeping and wailing are now celebrating. Again, a great reversal. Okay? And a feast. And that would have been, honestly, the best ending. The book does go on, and there is a very ugly truth of this book, which is that Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people take revenge. They kill Haman's sons. They don't, they're not satisfied with deliverance. They're like, we're never going to be disrespected like this. We're never going to be threatened. And you kind of understand it. Even today, we see people where cities or countries are at war, and we're not satisfied, countries are not satisfied with just not being at war. Peace isn't an option for war-hungry people. They won't settle for peace. They have to settle for domination. And that was true for these people. It's not like the Israelites or the Jewish people were completely blameless. Um, they go out. They kill Haman's sons. They kill a whole lot of other people. And Esther even asked for a second day to do it more, kill more people. That's why I don't leave that out because it's part of the story. Now, later on, Jesus would come and show a completely different way of dealing with power. All right? And they had this festival, though, that the Jewish people still celebrate today called Purim. Uh, some people, I have a lot of Jewish friends, and a lot of them kind of call it the Halloween of Jewish holidays. It's not a super religious holiday, but it's a fun holiday. They dress up. They eat things called Haman's ears, hamantashen, um, and um, they give... They give gifts to the poor. They give gifts to each other. They feast, things like that. And it's great, okay? Um, so why is this in our faith of the forerunners? I want to show you a quote. And the quote is um, from a commentary that I used back when I, when I was first studying this book. And this quote, I highlighted it then, and it still just kind of sticks with me now, especially in this particular sermon series. Accounts of salvation, being saved. No, don't just think about salvation in the spiritual sense. But accounts of salvation are always faith-creating and faith-confirming. And somehow Esther conforms to this norm without the necessity to identify that it is God's hand at work. It is as if to say the author is saying, I am inviting you to hear this story and to respond to it with faith. The journey to faith requires pondering events, searching for God within the plot, and choosing to see his active presence. And it is a choice. Just like anything else, even the story of Abraham with his son 
last week. That's a tough story. We choose or not to see God's active presence. All right, that's what faith is. All right. And so some big ideas, some things that we can take away from this that do recount God. One is that while God may seem hidden sometimes, he is not absent. In this story, God was never mentioned, and people probably didn't think God was actively involved. But he is not absent. And so in the story, I hope you picked up on, again, again, it's a choice to think, did I, do I think some of those things were caused by God? Was it his invisible hand? I do really want to be clear that I don't think that God made Esther beautiful so that she could be sold to a king and live that kind of life. But I do think that Esther was in a position of power to help her people, and he worked in her heart to bend her heart to him. I do think God heard his people when they fasted, and they likely prayed while they fasted, because in every other circumstance in the Old Testament, the two go hand in hand. And you can reread the story if you'd like um, to see where else God was present. And, sorry, go back one more. So one question I have for you is, where does God seem hidden in our world today? And I almost have so many answers to this question that I don't even want to say them because they're dark truths. Where does God seem hidden in our world today? Or even in my life, in the school I teach at. It's sometimes really hard to see. But like that quote I'm kind of hanging on, we're invited to hear the story, respond in faith, ponder events, search for God, choose to see his active presence. We don't have to. He doesn't require it of us. And then notice that God may seem hidden, but that doesn't mean he's absent. We have too many stories with the people in this room alone of where we just know God was active in something really big. So I invite you this week, if you don't have a story like that, to reach out and ask. And if you do have a story like that, tell your story. People need to hear it. On the next slide, my second big idea is Jesus shows us how he used his power. We know that Jesus didn't seek out revenge on his enemies like the Jewish people did. Okay, Just because the Jewish people do something in the Old Testament doesn't mean that's God saying, this is how I want you to act. Because if the Jewish people in the Old Testament were the ultimate, I mean, even Jewish people today would say, yeah, our people made a lot of mistakes, just like all people. This is why we have Jesus, to show us how he used his power. He gave his power away. He had everything, and he gave his power away. He befriended sinners. He befriended women. So you have about... (laughs) about 500 years between these two stories. And women were not really looked much better upon in Jesus' time than in Esther's time. He befriended the poor. Even the people he befriended that had a lot of power, like maybe a tax collector, he, he wasn't befriending them to get their power. 
He befriended them and immediately urged them to give their power away, to help others. So I ask you, what power might have you been given? Just the fact that we're here of our own free choice and we have clothes and probably ate food today, we have more power than other people we've drove past. Um, it's easy to focus on the one thing that's not going right, like Haman did. All right. What I think is a harder calling, but it's noble to think about what do I have that someone else needs a lot more than I do? And so how are we using it? How are we using our power, our voice, our words, our influence, wherever we may be, our money? And so I'm going to pray in a few minutes. And as I pray, I'm actually going to, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to, I wrote a prayer out ahead of time and I'm going to read it. But as I pray, you can listen to my words or you can think of your answers to these questions and give that over to God or ask to see God in a more tangible way if he seems very hidden from you. So Lord, help us to look through the mysteries of life and recognize your presence. Please show yourself to us when we seek, and please strengthen our faith. Show us how to give our power away to others who have no power. Bring this world into your kingdom of love and peace. Show us how to live lives that are full of love and full of peace and full of hope. Amen. May we not lose a faithful and expectant spirit, which hopes and moves towards justice, peace, and recognizing the dignity of all people. May we not lose hope in the ultimate triumph of good over evil. And as Esther prayed faithfully and worked courageously for the deliverance of her people, strengthen us to confront the oppressor and free the oppressed, so that all people may know the justice and the unity of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Go in peace.